Come before the Lord one more time and ask for his help. Lord, we need to hear from you, and you have something to teach us in these three verses. Something to encourage us, maybe rebuke us. We don't presume upon you. I don't want to presume upon you. So I I come to this task of preaching with humility, knowing that I have many weaknesses, many sins and imperfections. And we come knowing that we are easily allured by many other voices, easily distracted. So we need your help to hear you speak to us. We don't pray that this word would come alive to us because it is alive. Rather, we pray that we would come alive to this word. And you would do a mighty work in our midst, even on a Sunday evening when it is beautiful outside. Come, Holy Spirit, teach us, lead us, guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am excited about this passage tonight. All of the passages are good. This one I I found particularly enlightening as I had the privilege to study it. I Two things usually happen to me as I prepare sermons. One, at some point in the preparation, I think, this is really a grind. I did this last week. I did this two times maybe last week. And here I am again. And then there's usually at some point in the preparation also the feeling of, I can't believe that I get to do this. That this is, this is my job to spend hours each week studying the scriptures and then to come before you and hopefully, by God's grace, to have something to share with you. I don't know if the sermon is good, but the passage is really good. This whole section from Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, and we will only look at half of it tonight, but, but these verses are so full of meaty important, crucial doctrine and application that the church desperately needs to hear. I have no idea what you come with tonight and what you think you need to hear or want to hear or what you're interested in hearing, but I do know that you need to hear this. This is relevant. I'm going to read from... Verses 16 through 18 of Second Peter, chapter 1. Peter writes, by the inspiration of the Spirit, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, For when he received honor and glory from God, the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Let me situate these verses for you and explain where they fit in Peter's argument. Thus far... This letter has been about godliness. If you look at verses 3 through 11, we talked about God's 
power, his power for godliness and then the pattern for godliness and the premise for godliness. Peter is exhorting these believers scattered throughout Asia Minor that they would be holy as God is holy. Then last week in verses or a couple of weeks ago in verses 12 through 15, Peter makes clear that the end of his life is drawing near. He is going to die. The Lord Jesus, before he ascended, told Peter that he would die. And now Peter sees not, not just that he would die. He could have guessed that, but that he would die a martyr's death. And now Peter can see it probably because Nero is in power and. He's an old man, Peter is, and sees that the end is coming. And before he dies, he wants to remind them of these things. Verse 12, in particular, these qualities, the qualities that we saw earlier of virtue and knowledge and self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love. Verses 5 through 7, he wants to remind them of these things before he dies. And one of the reasons he is so earnest To remind them and exhort them to godliness is because this is precisely what the false teachers are not encouraging. The false teachers are allowing for, in fact, encouraging sensuality. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Go down a little further. Verse 10, still talking about these false teachers, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. That is the apostolic truth. Go down to verse 18 for speaking loud boasts of folly. These teachers entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom. But they themselves are slaves of corruption for whatever Overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. These teachers were going around saying, look, it it doesn't matter how you live. We will offer you freedom and you can live a sexually fulfilled, sensuous lifestyle. And Peter sees this infiltrating these dear brothers and sisters whom he loves and has labored for. And he wants so much before he dies to tell them that this is not the way to live as God's people. He exhorting the believers here to ignore the false teachers and pursue holiness. And one of the reasons they ought to pursue holiness is because of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is an Old Testament term. It's also, as we'll see, a New Testament term. It simply refers to the day when the Lord visits his people for salvation and for judgment. It's really what the whole book of Revelation is about. God is coming and he visits his people with salvation and judgment. The day of the Lord, if you are one of the obedient, made righteous by God, then you have salvation. If you are not, if you despise his authority, you have judgment when Christ returns. Look at chapter three, verse 11. Peter, all throughout this epistle, is connecting the coming day of the Lord with this appeal to godliness. Verse 11, since all these things, that is the end of the world as we know it, cue the REM music, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And then look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, waiting for the day of the Lord, for Christ to return, for the end of this world, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. On this day, when Christ returns, he says the world will be destroyed, will be cleansed, our works will be exposed, the ungodly will be judged. Therefore, you ought to be ready. Be living lives of holiness. This is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 13. You remember the story from church history about St. Augustine, his famous conversion story. He's walking through the garden and he hears a voice, Tole Lege, which means pick up and read. Here's the children saying this and he picks up his Bible and he turns to this passage from Romans 13, which was God's means to convert him. Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed the night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Augustine had lived for the better part of his life, satisfying all of these desires, chasing different worldly philosophies, chasing sensual passions. And this was the means to bring him to Christ throughout the New Testament, the second coming of Christ, which we, uh, we I'm convinced make far too little of. The second coming of Christ is a profound motivation for turning aside from wickedness and making every effort to pursue a godly, virtuous life. Now, the false teachers doubted that there was anything to fear. They doubted that this day of the Lord would come. Look at chapter three, verse four. Peter says, they will say, so this is what the the opponents, the false teachers are claiming. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, it's unclear if these teachers thought that Christ had already returned somehow. That's what they thought in Thessalonica. Or if there was a spiritual return that they expected. We don't know exactly how they got off track, but they are way off track and they do not believe in the coming day of the Lord as the apostles have taught them. And so they say, look, here in verse four, look, the world is just going to keep going the way that it is. This is how things have always been since the beginning of creation. Look, Jesus died. He, He went up to heaven. It's been A generation now, they would say. We could say, it's been millennia. Really? Come on, Jesus is coming back? Now, forget it. They said, look, the world is going to keep going the way it always has. It's not going to end. There's no day of the Lord. There's no judgment. There's no reward. And if that were true, wouldn't that significantly alter any sort of motivation for godliness? 
Think of a, a babysitter really struggling with the children. She, I'll say she, most babysitters are she. She's watching. Not my children, I'm sure, but maybe yours. Really struggling. And she says, finally, listen, you, you, and if they're from this church, you and you and you and you and you, <laughs> look, mom and dad are coming home soon. When? I don't know. It can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned, but they will come home soon and they will take care of you. As Bill Cosby liked to say, I brought you out into this world, I can take you out. <laughs> They will take care of you. I do not have the authority, but the ones who are returning will. Now, if the children do not believe, they do not have faith in the message of the babysitter, they will have no fear. But if they believe, ah, any moment, mom and dad could return, then what sort of children ought we to be? That's what Peter is trying to protect. These false teachers, you see in verse 29, they're the freedom folks. They promise freedom. Look, we have a better way to live. Fewer rules. Maybe they suggested to these Christians that they could be spiritual without being religious. Or they could have a relationship with God without any rules. Said, look, this is what it means. You can have freedom. They felt, these teachers, as the Greeks and Romans often felt, that this whole life after death, judgment thing was nothing but an effort to control people. You can find this sentiment all over the place. You Christians and your idea of heaven and hell, you're just, just trying to control, just trying to manipulate people, just trying to scare them and, well, you better behave. And that's what parents do. That's what pastors do to try to control people's behavior is they, they tell them that somewhere out there there's, there's a boogeyman coming who's going to punish you. That's what they thought. They figure Peter and the apostles are just making this, this day of the Lord thing up. Now, that, that sounds pretty contemporary. We don't need to fear that uh, this Jesus isn't nice guy all the way around. No judgment, no consequences for sin. I mean, sin may mess up your life here and now, but really, there's no eternal consequences. Think about the Apostles Creed. Perhaps the most important line in our day is this. Jesus ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe that? He will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's what so few people believe. If you take that out of the Christian equation, you will not end up with Christianity. Conversely, if you get that in the equation, you are well on your way to a vibrant, robust, biblical faith. Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Now, Peter reinforces the truthfulness of the coming of Christ. He says in chapter 1, verse 16, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of Of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word coming is the Greek word parousia 
which is almost a technical term for the second coming. It's not talking about the coming of Christ and his incarnation, but the second coming. So chapter three, verse four, where is the promise of his coming? That's the word parousia. Chapter three, verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. That's parousia. When it says power and coming, it's just talking about a powerful coming. This is going to be a big deal. Chapter three, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So that's a pretty big deal. You're, you're going to know when that happens. It's a powerful coming. And in this letter, Peter is focused almost exclusively on this doctrinal point. And I imagine if uh, Peter were here today, he'd have all sorts of critics. Why, why are you focusing on that? There's so... Why aren't you talking about prayer? Or you're not talking about evangelism. Or shouldn't we be talking about other more important things? Why You're just always about the coming day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Well, he had to focus on that because it was the issue under dispute. We do not get to choose in which age we will live. We don't get to choose the issues that the church has to wrestle with. For the life of me, I, I wish there were almost any, I would, any other doctrinal issue were the issue in our day besides human sexuality. I, I grew up in a very stoic Dutch home. I don't want to talk about sex all the time. But you have to if you're going to be faithful to the issues that are before us. We have to talk about the atonement. We have to talk about inerrancy. We have to talk about the uniqueness of Christ in a pluralistic world. Not because we're just trying to hammer away at people or we're trying to just make ourselves as obnoxious as possible, but because these are the issues. And we must take a stand. In Peter's day, this was one of them. And to support this claim that Jesus is coming again, he gives two kinds of evidence. There, there were in the ancient world two basic kinds of evidence, and they're the same sorts of evidence that we have today. Number one, you could call on authoritative sources. If you want to defend your claim, you have authoritative sources, people, documents. And that's what Peter will give us next time in verses 19 through 21. He goes to the prophetic word. He looks at Scripture. The other source of evidence is eyewitness evidence. And even today, I imagine in a courtroom that there, these, these are the basic kinds of evidence. The lawyer who wants to defend someone or prosecute someone is, is doing these two things. Submitting some sort of documents, that sort of evidence, sources, or presenting eyewitnesses. And that's what Peter marshals to defend the claim that there is a coming day of the Lord. And the first source of evidence is the eyewitness testimony of those who were with him. Verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. The Greek word mythos, from which we get our word myth. That's why I went to seminary, so I could figure out that myth comes from mythos. It is always used negatively in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 1.4, 1 Timothy 4.7, 2 Timothy 4.4, Titus 1.4 are the other occasions where mythos is used. It is always a negative term. 
There were some liberal scholars in the 19th and 20th century who tried to rejuvenate this idea of myth and use it as a category to describe the Bible. So that a myth meant you had stories that were not true historically, factually, but they contained a a larger, deeper truth in them. So people might look at Jonah. Jonah's not historical, they might say, but there's a truth there that God can rescue people. Or they might look at Adam and Eve and say Adam and Eve were not truly historical persons. But it's a true story in that we all sin and we rebel against God. Jesus, they might say, didn't really walk on water, but it's true. He will do anything to try to help us. Or the resurrection. Most famously, most damningly, they might say, was was not a literal historic event, but what matters is the Easter experience in our hearts. That God can bring good out of bad. That there's always hope. That's what Easter is about. This kind of thinking is still very pervasive. To to treat the Bible as a kind of myth around which the, the facts and the details don't matter as long as there is some quote-unquote, spiritual truth that we want to glean. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I had, had written something about the virgin birth and got some comments on it. And one from another pastor in our denomination uh, asking, well, would it really matter if the virgin birth weren't true? Would that really be so damaging to our faith? And so we did some correspondence back and forth on on the blog. You can go find this as as a matter of public record. This is some of his response to me, and then I'll read you my response to him. He says, do I think the virgin birth is essential to our creed as Christians? That's not really mine to say, is it? As you say, it has been confessed for centuries, and thus I need to take it seriously and to heart and to wrestle with how I understand it. For my part, I take the statement... All things are possible with God as more valuable to my faith than how can this be since I'm a virgin? I don't claim that you need to accept my understanding, nor would I imagine that you would claim that I must necessarily accept your understanding. So here's some of my response. You talk about what's valuable to your faith and how you need to wrestle with what has been confessed for centuries. But this ambiguous language suggests that you don't really believe in a historical virginal conception. This is troubling to me, number one, because Matthew and Luke clearly teach that Jesus was born of a virgin. I don't see how one can disbelieve the virgin birth without thinking that the Christmas story in the Gospels is just plain wrong on this matter. And if we think the Gospels are wrong, we should tell our people that's what we believe and not let them think we believe the traditional Christmas story. Number two, we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. And number three, Lord's Day 14 in our heart of catechism presumes a miraculous birth. You wrote, and here I'm quoting from what I just read, you wrote, do I think the virgin birth is essential to our creed as Christians? That's not really mine to say, is it? As you say, it has been confessed for centuries and I need to take it seriously and wrestle with it. For my part, I take this statement, all things are possible with God is more valuable to my faith than that I'm still a virgin. 
I don't claim that you need to accept my understanding, nor do I imagine that you would claim that I must necessarily accept your understanding. That's his quote. My response. I take no joy in being argumentative. Really, I don't. But actually, I do claim that you need to accept my understanding because I don't believe it is just my understanding. I believe the Bible teaches clearly that Jesus was born of a literal virgin. Moreover, being a part of the historic Orthodox Christian faith means confessing the virgin birth. If all things are indeed possible with God, why not accept what the scriptures and the church teaches that Jesus was born miraculously and literally of a virgin? I know that you said that your reading allows for a virgin birth, but doesn't demand it. I'm not sure what that means. It sounds like you don't want to say I'm wrong for believing in the virgin birth, but you don't want anyone to say you are wrong for not believing it. But either Jesus was born of a virgin, as Matthew and Luke tell us, or he wasn't. The gospel writers do not talk about the virgin birth as a metaphor of God doing hard things. The context is very literal. It says he knew her not. So if Jesus wasn't born of a virgin, the creed is wrong, the catechism is wrong, the gospels are wrong, and I'm wrong. Here's my last paragraph. Maybe I've misread your comments and you do, in fact, believe in the historicity of the virgin birth. Please tell me if that is the case. I don't want to misrepresent your beliefs. But if you don't believe Jesus was born 2,000 years ago to a young woman who had never had sex but was, was miraculously pregnant by the Holy Spirit, then we are not confessing the same creed or telling the same Christmas story, and we are believing things that cannot both be right. Maybe you don't run into these sorts of discussions like I find somehow. This is so... Prevalent. The level of argumentation out there is getting people to admit the law of non-contradiction. Because, well, my people want to talk about my reading of the story says this. I'm not saying you have to believe this. I'm sure you wouldn't say I have to believe this. No, no, I'm saying you do. Because this says that you do. We're not, see, it's a totally different category. We're not talking about myths that have some, you know, what really matters is God can do impossible things. But whether or not he did this impossible thing that the text clearly states, we could sort of take it or leave it. Centuries before the Bible, Aristotle stated that eyewitnesses were useful in establishing, quote, whether a thing has occurred or not. And that matters in the Christian faith. Peter wants everyone to know that this Jesus story is in the category of historical, verifiable fact, not merely inner impressions or experiences or invented stories to make a point. The Greeks had lots of myths. It was called mythology. And they did not really believe that these stories had a historical, verifiable accuracy. They didn't care that the point of the story wasn't whether Hercules was really the illegitimate son of Zeus with godlike powers. It was a myth. But Christians saw things entirely different. This, this cannot be stated too strongly. It cannot be stated too strongly. Christianity from the very beginning, tied itself irrevocably to history. To history. Luke 
wanted his readers to know that he researched the events he wrote about. John wanted his audience to believe that the miracles really happened. All four Gospels want us to recognize the tomb was empty because Jesus was raised, even though some spread the report that his body was stolen. One commentator says, in contrast to almost all other religions of the time, Christianity had a stubbornly historical basis. Christianity stands or falls on history. And you, we have to get this and we have to understand it as we talk to people because that is a totally different category when people talk about I'm spiritual or not religious or I'm spiritual, not religious. They mean they have an ahistorical religion. It doesn't matter whether things happened. They see religion uh, spirituality as sort of just something we come up with that helps us explain ourselves, explain our predicament. History makes all the difference. J. Gresham Machen, if you've never read Machen, I would commend him to you. He's still very readable and very relevant as he dealt with these same issues in the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the 1920s. He says, if that is so, if the Christian religion is founded upon historical facts, then there is something in the Christian message which can never possibly change. There is one good thing about facts. They stay put. If a thing really happened, the passage of years can never possibly make it into a thing that did not happen. If the body of Jesus really emerged from the tomb on the first Easter morning, then no possible advance of science can change the fact. One whit. The advance of science may conceivably show that the alleged fact was never a fact at all. It may conceivably show that the earliest Christians were wrong when they said that Christ rose from the dead. But to say that the statement of fact was true in the first century... But that because of the advance of science, it is no longer true. That is to say what is plainly absurd. The Christian religion is founded squarely upon a message that sets forth facts. If that message is false, then the religion it is founded upon must be abandoned. But if it is true, then the Christian church must still deliver the message faithfully as it did on the morning of the first Easter day. Christianity is stubbornly bound up in historical Facts. None of this, of course, proves by itself that the Bible is true. But it does demonstrate that you cannot suggest that the apostles made up stories about Jesus. They did not borrow from other myths. They did not say, well, what, what are the what are the pagans got? Let's let's get one of those stories. No, they saw their teaching in a completely different category. You can argue That the things the apostles spoke about didn't happen, but you cannot argue that they didn't believe that they really happened. Well, you say, maybe the apostles didn't remember correctly. I I think they'd remember if Jesus was dead or alive. They'd remember if they saw Jesus turn dazzling white on a mountain. I mean, they'd at least get that. That's a sort of hard thing to forget or, or to get wrong. And what are the odds that Matthew, Mark, and Luke and Peter all remember incorrectly the same story? And incidentally, when you run into discrepancies among the Gospels, because there are these apparent discrepancies, you say, well, how many angels were at the tomb? Or how, how come Mark's accounts, Jesus says, don't take, 
or take a staff. And, and then in Matthew, it says, don't take a staff. What, what do we do with some of these apparent discrepancies in the Gospels? Well, one of those things I think those discrepancies actually can do is to bolster our faith because it, it, it shows us that this was no collaborative effort where all of the early Christians sat down and said, OK, we're going to write some Gospels. Now, let's make sure. What, what are you going to say? Yeah, that's good. Let me get that down. Now, if, if they were just manufacturing something to convince the masses they would have done a better job of ironing out some of the things that are hard to understand or seem like discrepancies to us. And you say, well, maybe the Gospels weren't really written by the Gospel writers. Maybe it was, it was somebody later. And so the apostles never believed these things. They were just later writers who, who claimed them. But from the very earliest church fathers like Irenaeus or Papias from the second century, they claim that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John actually wrote these books. You think, well, maybe they just made up those connections. Well, if they were going to make up some gospel writers, they would not have made up Mark and Luke. Because Mark and Luke are two bit players in the rest of the story. I mean, Matthew and John, they're they're apostles. They would have made up a gospel according to Peter or Andrew or, you know, somebody who was really there. They would have done a better job if they just wanted to make up something so it sounded authoritative. All of this to say, I think that if, you know, if you come to the Gospels with a hermeneutic of suspicion and you want to try to find why, well, this isn't true and I'm going to find out why. You know what? You can probably find something. If you want to go out and figure out why George Washington wasn't our first president, Probably got a book out there about it. You probably figure something out. But if you come like you would come to other historical texts and you look for corroborating evidence and you look for eyewitness testimony and the like, then we ought to be willing to take the Bible on its own terms. And, and just as an aside, you're saying an aside, the last 15 minutes has been an aside, I know. But another aside, when you're doing apologetics, when you're talking to people who don't be, they don't believe the Bible is God's word. Don't try to prove to them God wrote this book. You, you're not going to be able to do it. The, the Holy Spirit has to convince us, has to testify to our spirits that this is God's word. So that's not what you're not trying to prove. So you just sort of diffuse a whole lot of tension when someone says, well, prove to me. You know, the Muslims say they have a book. The Hindus, they have sacred books. Prove to me that God wrote this book. Look, I, I'm not going to prove that to you. What you want to do is try to demonstrate that it is reasonable to trust these documents. That it is a reasonable, rational thing to believe that, that the words here are accurate. That You're just trying to create plausibility structures. Trying to just clear the way so people can read it with an open mind. And God will have to speak by his spirit. Peter claims he was an eyewitness. And that makes all the difference. He says, look, this transfiguration, I saw it. I heard it. I was an eyewitness and I was an earwitness. We are not making this up to scare you. This is what happened. We were there. We saw his majesty. We heard God speak. You know, whenever you talk to Christians and they say, you know, I just heard God speak. And what they always add, you know, it wasn't an audible voice. 
Well, Peter's saying, it was an audible voice. If you had a, a movie camera, I know you don't know what cameras are yet because we're in the first century, but if you had one and you were there, you would see what I see. You, you would hear what I heard. This is fact, not fable. So what does this have to do with the second coming of the Lord? Why is Peter going to such great pains to demonstrate he was an eyewitness of the transfiguration? Remember, the end goal is that they would be godly. One of the ways for them to be godly is to believe in the second coming. And Peter says, believe in the second coming because of the transfiguration. What's the connection there? Here's the connection. Peter understood that what he saw on the mountain was not just a theophany. Theophany is the word for a, a God appearing. It was not just an example of Christ's full deity revealed. It was that, but it was something else. It was also a, a forward-looking vision of the glory that would be revealed for all time at His coming again. Peter saw the transfiguration as, of Christ as a vision of the future. So Peter can say, I know that the parousia, that the coming of the Lord is true because I've already seen it. Go back to Mark. To Mark's account. We'll just do Mark since we've been in Mark on Sunday morning of the transfiguration. Here's what happened. Chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said, Jesus, uh, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. All three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that have the transfiguration, the story is immediately preceded by... A discussion about the coming kingdom. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And you get confused. What does that mean? Does that mean Jesus said he, he was going to return again before the apostles died? No. He, it, there's a reason why each of the Gospels have that statement, and then immediately after it is the story of the transfiguration. Because the transfiguration is the answer to that word. Peter, James, and John were those standing here who saw the kingdom of God come with power. They saw it in a foretaste. They saw it there on the mountain. What the kingdom was going to look like when it finally arrived at the end of the age and Jesus was the 
unrivaled, undisputed king of the universe. They saw a glimpse of it there on the mountain. This is the kingdom come with power. The father from heaven says, this is my son. Echoing the language of Psalm 2. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2 is an investiture song. It's a song, a psalm of the king being installed as the king. And so here on the mount, the father is saying to his son, you are installed as my messianic Davidic king. And the king in Psalm 2 is a king who rules and conquers over the nations. The son in Psalm 2, his wrath is quickly kindled. Psalm 2 verse 6 even says that he comes to his holy hill. Probably they saw a connection here with the holy hill and then this mount of transfiguration. Peter saw the unveiling. He saw Jesus transfigured. He saw what Jesus looked like in his full divine regalia. And after seeing it, he knew you do not want to trifle with this man. Peter realized then and there he was more than a carpenter, more than an open minded, super tolerant guru. When he saw him sparkle white and dazzle in majesty with the glory cloud, this is the glory cloud that filled the temple all surrounding them. He knew this is not a man to be taken lightly. It's like if you had a little baby lion. As a lion grows up and at some point it gets its roar. These I'm sort of piecing together what lions are like from the Lion King and other sort of you know Disney cartoons. But you know, a little squeak maybe at first, and here's a cute little lion sweet. And at some point, you know, when it first gets that you know, that's my lion impression. You know, whatever it sounds like, it gets it gets, gets that roar. And even if even if it's small and unimpressive, you see see the teeth and the roar, and you, you get a little glimpse of what this cat is going to become. A little unveiling of its, of its glory. You know what it will be later. And Peter saw that. And he is so desperate that these Christians believe it. He says, I, I was there. I saw it. And I have to, you must believe me. From what, if you could see what I saw of Jesus on the mountain, you would know that ungodly living is not consistent with the glory of a transfigured Christ. Why be holy? I pretty much guarantee that in counseling people and discipling and talking to your kids, Probably never gone to the Mount of Transfiguration. I haven't. But you ought to. Why be holy? Why does it matter how you live? Because of what Peter saw on the mountain. Who Jesus is. What he's like and what he will be like when he comes 
robed in his full splendor and majesty and power. Our faith cannot be built from pure logical deduction. You can't just say, well, this is true, this is true, this is true. Okay, I'm a Christian. The Spirit must do things. It must open our eyes, reveal Christ to us. But don't discount the importance of evidence, of knowing that we do not follow cleverly invented fables. You, you ever, I'm, I'm sure you have doubts at times. We all do. You ever wonder, am I doing the right thing? Is this, is this Christianity? Is this, is this really it? And you struggle. That's where it's so important to remember the gospel that we believe, it happened. It happened in history. It wasn't like this was one way that people came up with to uh, relate to God. Or this was one answer to our most probing questions. No, there was a man born of a virgin in Bethlehem. And as he grew, thousands of people flocked to him. Thousands of people saw his miracles. Not once do they discount the reality of his miracles. They, they discount the connection and what it means about him. But they saw he died. Even non-Christian sources recognized there was a man named Christ and he died. And that some of his believers claimed that he rose again. Paul tells us he appeared to 500 witnesses. And then you have the three disciples who were eyewitnesses of his majesty on the mountain. We are not interested in stories that have a moral point to them. We do not follow fables. But history. Close with a story from John Newton. He tells of a story when he was visiting a young woman who was dying, dying of a lingering consumption. He says that she was wise, but plain. She could read her Bible, but had read little else. Newton supposes that she never traveled more than 12 miles from her home. 12 miles. She's born in East Lansing. You never make it to Portland. How could you live, huh? You never, you never make it to Grand... Twelve miles. A few days before her death, Newton prayed with her and, quote, Thank the Lord that he gave her now to see that she had not followed cunningly devised fables. That's quoting from this text. And at this last remark, the woman repeated Newton's words to him. Cunningly devised fables. And then she said, quote, No, not cunningly devised fables. These are realities indeed. And then Newton records that she, she fixed her eyes steadfastly upon him and said this, Sir, you are highly favored in being called to preach the gospel. I have often heard you with pleasure, but give me leave to tell you that I now see all you have said or can say is comparatively but little. Nor till you come into my situation and have death and eternity in full view, will it be possible for you to conceive the vast weight and importance of the truths you declare. Oh, sir, 
It is a serious thing to die. No words can express what is needful to support the soul in the solemnity of a dying hour. You and I may not know the weight of which we sing and pray or speak. We may not know the weight until we come to the end of our days. And at that moment, we will be especially glad that we have the facts of history on our side, not cunningly devised fables. These things happened. Eyewitnesses recorded them. We ought to believe them. Jesus rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So we ought not to live as though He were a tame lion. Father in heaven, thank you for preserving a witness to these things. As Jesus himself said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We believe based on the eyewitness testimony of those who were there, who heard the majestic glory. And we tremble with them. Stir us up and change us. Some of us perhaps have been trifling with you. Help us before it is too late. Thank you, Lord, that you are a refuge for all those who put their trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.